The Women in Agile podcast series amplifies voices of outstanding women in the Agile community. We're dedicated to sharing the wisdom and inspiration our community has to offer by telling our stories, being thought leaders, and having open conversations with our allies. This series is brought to you in partnership from the Women in Agile organization and Scrum.org. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Women in Agile podcast. I am your host, Leslie Morse, and today we're chatting with Lisa Bradburn. Lisa is a Toronto-based Agilist that serves as a Scrum Master and Agile coach. She's in her fourth year of study on Gestalt psychotherapy and leverages the principles of here and now as she works with Agile teams. She is also pursuing Enneagram and Coactive Coach training and certification. Hello, Lisa. Hi, good morning, Leslie. Good morning. Thank you for being with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I was delighted when I discovered you on LinkedIn and started reading some of the stuff you've been writing on Medium. And I was like, this is someone I want to talk to because I'm so interested in that intersection of professional coaching and agile coaching in the agile industry. Bringing in that lens of psychotherapy, I was like, ooh, this is a whole different realm of study. So um, I think listeners Mm -hmm. are in for a treat today. Oh, I'm excited to tell you all about it. Okay, so before we get there, just what's your Agile origin story? How did you even find Agile in the first place? Yeah, well, I would say that Agile found me. So I was working for Royal and Sun Alliance in their digital team at the time, and all of us project managers were mandated to become scrum masters. So we went for our certification, and I think from there on in, I was just sold. You know, I am a very collaborative person by nature. I'm all about transparency. I don't like hierarchy. So a lot of these values that were being discussed, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I really resonated with that. So um, I did not feel a resistance or any kind of, you know, moving or growing pains from that experience. Um, And I was really already ready without maybe even knowing it, uh, ready for that change in my life. That's really great. Now, what sort of work were you doing? What kind of practitioner or professional were you prior to discovering Scrum? Was it like project management, business analysis? Like what, what were you, Mm -hmm. uh, work were you doing? Yeah. Yeah. I was a a senior project manager at the time and had been in that role for quite a number of years So I felt like a little bit of stuckness already. So for Mm -hmm. me, this was the the way to propel change and really uh, actually start the inner work on myself. Yeah, and that I think um, is the cool thing about Agile is that the way it brings humanity into work in different Mm -hmm. sort of ways and creates that opportunity for doing work on yourself um, just so we can Mm -hmm. all be better humans uh, in all aspects of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think is really great. And, and speaking of being great in kind of all aspects of life, right, the, the whole gender divide and um, safety in the workplace and all of that, how were you experiencing the role of women in your professional life? And what have you noticed about how women sort of show up in the agile industry and how our agile community creates space for equality? Yeah, those are definitely heavy questions. Um, And I will be the first to admit that I have not always given a lot of consideration to the gender roles. Um, Maybe I've lived in a bit of a bubble and I realize this podcast is Women in Agile. 
Um, so yeah, for me, it's always been the work that is representative and the work that speaks for itself rather than looking at, well, you know, is it female or male? Mm -hmm. But that being said, your question did spark a lot of curiosity within me and I paid more attention and, you know, I did a little research and I realized that in Canada specifically, um, if we just look at like software engineers as an example, um, I learned from a study from January 2020 from Engineers Canada that only 14% of, um, uh, of students are women that are entering into computer science. And that really baffled me. And I thought, wow, there, there is a disparity. And it really kind of awakened me um, to the challenge that we have. So really, to, to answer your question, you know, my eyes are now open um, through the question that you asked. And yes, we definitely need more female representation. And, and I think that's a, a challenge that I'm going to hold upon myself to see if I can actually mentor in those areas. Yeah. And I think I, I love that this sparked research. I don't know if I've had a guest come on before that was like, I haven't looked at this enough and I'm like now aware in different mm -hmm. ways. So I think that is really awesome. And I think mm -hmm. kind of use that as a call to action for listeners of if you feel like you're not really up on what's going on in your local <laughs> market or maybe your exact sort of niche of expertise, like yeah. start getting curious and start paying attention in different ways. And I want to normalize your experience of, I don't really feel that impacted because I talk to a lot of folks that are in that way. Um, and it's like, you know, I just showed up and I was me and I did my stuff and yeah. the, um, the, the privilege that goes along with having been able to operate that way is mm -hmm. a new place that I've really been curious over the past, really, I guess, year specifically with the increase in conversation around systemic injustice and other sorts of things. It's like, where, wow, I have privilege just in my regular career where there are plenty of my friends and family and colleagues that have been disadvantaged just because they're female. And it's like, I don't want to be contributing to the patriarchy in that way. So mm -hmm. it's just, it's a whole nother layer of the onion to peel back. Absolutely. Um, and sometimes that's a hard mirror to look into. Yeah. Yeah. The, the research kind of made me feel uncomfortable and that yeah. feeling alone, you know, was an indicator. Oh, I am a part of this system. What can yes. I do? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that feeling of being uncomfortable is such. And if you're not kind of going slow enough to be aware to notice the discomfort, um, okay. you can blow right past it. But for me, that feeling of discomfort is such a signal for, mm, this is probably an important place for me to get curious. Discomfort <laughs> is not a thing to run away from. Let yeah. me be with this for a minute. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, how, how might we look to the study of psychotherapy you've been doing as a place to help us, like you and I, and us, the larger community, in our journeys around navigating this discomfort? Yeah, this is an excellent segue, 
And I think first and foremost, you know, just uh, to level set, so gestalt psychotherapy is a is a certain modality. There are many, many in this world, and it's one. Um, so if I look at the the word itself, gestalt, it's a German word, um, and it means the whole is different from the sum of all parts. So to relate it back to your question. You know, and it's going to be a slightly long-winded way, but I will get there. I promise. I trust um, you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, you know, humans are are not just the brain and the intellect. And I think too often in our work environments, that's where we go. We go to the head. Um, so where Gestalt helps is, you know, we look at this body that's underneath this head, and we look at the whole. Um, so in a nutshell, you know, Gestalt psychotherapy is about that mind-body connection and really how we live in relationship with the world around us, bringing our entire being. Um, so that being said, like there are some real key uh, themes within Gestalt psychotherapy that I think are universal and okay. really apply to looking at, you know, even like some of the, the, the big questions that we were just talking about. So, for instance, you know, taking personal responsibility, um, I think, is is key and agile. We see that theme quite a lot. We see that in gender disparity. Um, also, you know, we kind of briefly touched, and we'll get into it a little bit more later. That here and now, and and what does that mean? So, in Gestalt psychotherapy, which is a little bit different than other modalities and even psychology, uh, while we recognize the past as being important and you know a lot of times the past you know we've had some trauma um, what we look at is while acknowledging that yes that happened we bring it into today okay well how is it impacting you right here and right now what can we do to work on this mm. um, so that's where gestalt is really based in mindfulness um, and a lot of our work involves developing presence with self and with others. And that's why it is so applicable to agile coaching. Yeah, as well as just kind of all of the world work that's happening in terms of social change mm -hmm. today. I think that's really interesting. Um, I want to know what drew you to studying this and how you kind of uh, got into it. But also in, in telling us that, can you give us a little bit of a contrast between what is psychotherapy versus more traditional therapy that someone might go to or um, coaching? Because a lot of the things that you talked about sound like coaching-ish things yeah. to me. And so I just want to help create distinctions in people's head. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, there are it's funny, the more that I get into gestalt psychotherapy uh, and agile coaching, the more parallels I definitely see in terms of the approach. Um, but where I see the divide is uh, whereas like in therapy, no matter what modality it is, mm -hmm. it's usually people bringing in, you know, personal challenges, real, you know, trauma, hurts from the past, things that are really like familial stuff things that are really impacting them on a deep personal level. Um, and to me, that is the dividing line. As an agile coach, I would never go into that boundary. Right. Um, my focus is on 
still partnering and meeting the person where they're at, but yet focusing on how we can move in our business agility, how we can um, focus on maybe removing barriers or the challenges as it relates to our work. So having that knowledge and, uh, and knowing where that boundary lies is incredibly helpful. Yeah. And that reminds me of, um, I, I know we want to talk about ethics. And so let's just actually go mm-hmm. ahead and, and hit it right now, because that okay. sounds to me like the same conversations we have around professional coaching and things from like, you know, EMCC, European Mentoring mm-hmm. and Coaching Council, um, or ICF, International Coaching Federation, and the ethics there, and how they intersect with agile coaching so that like, no, I'm not here to coach you on your divorce or something Mm -hmm. going on with your parents that's active and now and what you want to create in your life. I'm here coaching under the macro agenda of agility. I hear you pointing to the same boundaries with Gestalt psychotherapy and how you bring that into your work as agile coaching. What else is important around sort of leveraging psychotherapy in the workplace when you probably weren't hired to do that in the first place? (laughs) No, no, I wasn't. I I often think about the show Billions and how they have an in-house psychotherapist and how cool that is, but that is not my role (laughs) as an agile coach. (laughs) Um, Well, let me give you some examples. Perfect. um, I think to illustrate. Uh, I love telling stories, so I think this will help. Um, yeah, so this this one is a bit more recent. Um, you know, a few months back, I, I did observe that I had a coworker who was unhappy, and I could tell she was unhappy just because she sighed a lot on conference calls. It was a, a key indicator, and uh, you know, just that heaviness. And although mm. I can't always see people on video, I listen to the tone and the quality of the voice to pick up cues to to see, well, what's really going on with this person? Um, So we had a one-on-one and I I gently brought in my observation. Hey, you know, you just seem a little unhappy. You know, is there something that I can support you with or help you? And, you know, bringing that observation into the container and bringing my comment, you know, she, I just felt something kind of pass in the environment. She's like, yeah, you know, there's been a lot of change lately and it's just making me uncomfortable. So to me, there was a boundary there. Like, okay, yes, I brought in the expression of unhappiness. There, there was an acknowledgement of that, but I did not go down. Well, how's your family life? Or tell me, you know, I did not head down a personal path. Instead, um, we reoriented and we looked at uh what about that change? What is it about the change that's really impacting you? And how can I support you in that? Yeah, yeah, that's a really great way to frame. And I think maybe one of the most important just practical things I heard in that is really listening to the people around you. Yes. Because the power in that story, Lisa, to me was, but you just got curious with her. Mm-hmm. And it sounds to me like just simply the fact she named she was unhappy yeah. and just putting that out into the universe was almost a clearing method mm-hmm. for her becoming less burdened 
And again, right, mm-hmm. I'm making up all sorts of my own stories. <laughs> but does that sound right for you? Yeah, yeah, I did. I think that it just helped to acknowledge the feeling. And, you know, it was already lingering. It was already heavy in the environment. But calling it out, I think, was critical in this case. And then, yeah, I mean, we both felt the heaviness on our shoulders. But the minute we started talking about it and unearthing and uncovering, oh, there's this change happening. What does this mean to you personally? Um, That really opened up a huge space for exploration and, and allowing it to just pass. Yeah. Yeah. Let's stick on the theme of stories, because I think stories are the best way for people to kind of translate things to their own lives and and all of this. So let's just let's hear a couple more. Um, Specifically, I'd love to hear something from you around um, something you were able to unlock with a team or Mm -hmm. enable a team to accomplish because you applied these gestalt psychotherapy skills and competencies that you don't think you would have been able to unlock or accomplish with the team otherwise? Yeah, definitely. So if I think about um, using some of these skills with person, you know, with some of the challenges we've encountered um, and and maybe I'm skipping ahead, but I think about, you know, team agreements, for example, Mm. um, you know, no, I, I can say with all honesty and transparency, we don't have, you know, my psychotherapy skills built into our team agreements. However, um, you know, the people that I work with know that I do this type of work. Um, but I I also stated very clearly that I'm not bringing in my psychotherapy hat into work. Um, I had one individual ask me one time, hey, are you assessing me or do you assess people? And I'm like, Mm, no, that's not my role here. So I had to very clearly lay out, you know, what what my purpose is in terms of coaching um, and what I do on the side separately. And I do not bring the two in together. So um, cultivating that awareness, I think, first yeah. and foremost, was important. Yeah. And so I guess if you, in a similar way, if I'm going to apply professional coaching skills, mm-hmm. right, and actually coach someone in the truest sense, I need to get their permission. You don't just coach somebody unbeknownst to them. Ooh. So I'm guessing it, the same thing applies in psychotherapy. Yeah, 100%. I mean, this is kind of a funny little example, but I have a, a close coworker of mine. You know, she came in and we're, we're talking about her lack of sleep. And so mm. she said to me, Lisa, you know, from a psychotherapy point of view, what do you recommend? And I'm like, are you sure you want to go there? Do you want the coaching hat or the psychotherapy (laughs) hat? And it was lighthearted, but it's a clear example of, you know, okay, so she clearly asked, um, Mm -hmm. so which route do we want to take? And she actually did want the psychotherapy route. So I offered up, uh, you know, it's not my job to give recommendations, but I just said, you know, um, let me provide some examples of what has worked for me in the past. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it was necessarily psychotherapy, but yeah, um, I was kind I of sitting her... in a mentoring sort yeah. of, let me walk <laughs> alongside you. <laughs> exactly. But I think um, what I love about that story is just the fact that we first had that conversation to level set. Yeah. Yeah. I was having a conversation with one of my colleagues the other day talking about, uh, pulling together more hours for my uh, coaching log for ICF certification. And 
um, he's like, oh, but you're coaching us all the time. I go, no, no, no. You Mm -hmm. see coaching skills show up in the way I lead and in the way I facilitate and all of my professional coach training and experience shapes how I show up as a human, but I'm not Mm -hmm. actually coaching you. And so I got to do a little education on what coaching actually is. Um, Mm -hmm. How has your study of Gestalt psychotherapy shifted just the way you show up in the world? Mm. Yeah, I think that I am much more in tune with myself mm-hmm. and especially through that mind-body connection and then how I'm bringing myself and showing up into the world. So, yeah, I, I can share. I actually have a few examples of this. Perfect. I've really given it a lot of thought. Great. Um, yeah, so the first one is uh, probably one of my favorites that I might get in a little bit of, uh, someone might challenge me on this. So if they hear this podcast, I am welcome to that opportunity. Uh, So I do work with a lot of offshore folks from India. um, And we have, and I also work for a Canadian company. So it is a bit of a a cultural mix, which makes things fascinating. Uh, But at the same time, You know, our Canadian company is, you know, providing mental health days and wellness days. We get time off. And, you know, I feel they really genuinely care about our well-being. Um, But I also know that our Indian friends, you know, their culture or at least their company culture might be a bit different. They don't really get mental health days. Mm -hmm. So I kind of put it out there in the space with the team that I'm working on. I'm like, all right, we have this Friday off for mental health, you know, do you feel like you, you want some time off? Tell me, tell me where you're at right now. And a lot of people were like, yeah, we would love that. And I said, well, collectively as a team, why don't we come up with a consensus that whenever the Canadian folks have time off for mental health, that we equally on our team allow our Indian counterparts to have the same. And this was a team consensus. We followed through with it. And it was just a way to kind of give back and to recognize that we are all important in this situation. Mm -hmm. Um. Absolutely. Absolutely. Was there a longing in you around this way to be present with other humans and to honor others in different ways or maybe honor yourself in a different way that drew you to this line of study? Like what was... What was in there that got you to this in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think with anything in life, there's usually a seismic shift that happens mm-hmm. where there's an awakening. And that was the case for me. So in 2014, you know, I, I had this fantastic career. I was consulting, you know, I was loving what I was doing. I was working with a media company and my uh, a very close uncle of mine who's a, was a bachelor. Um, he, uh, yeah, it's it's a little bit even hard for me to talk about it. But mm. he um, was diagnosed with terminal bone cancer. You know, he lived alone. So I moved in to our family farm with him. It became his primary caregiver, and just watching. You know, he was like a father to me. And so. Mm. Being there and really being fully engaged at the end of life was incredibly powerful for me. It was very difficult. At times, I felt very much alone 
you know, I was 37 at the time. So I was still in some ways growing myself. Um, also in parallel, I was going through a breakup with my partner. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and so this was a huge pivotal moment in my life where I really saw my own mortality. I started to, to almost see a mirror and, and really began to look at myself. And, and there's a lot of trauma wrapped up into this. And so from that experience, I started to take very deep uh, trauma therapy, um, about three different types of modalities, um, just to really get myself into a better mental state. And then I realized how powerful the effect was on me and how much change that I was starting to see in my own life for the better and and then the, the desire kicked in, wow, if this is working for me and I can get through this, I would love to be able to help others in this, in, in their trauma experiences. Yeah, yeah. I think there's, there's something emerging in the world because I'm hearing more and more stories like this. Um, there's a woman that uh, I collaborate with frequently who's done deep study in just grief and grief processing. And I, there, I'm not sure if it's just a systemic calling from the world for more of us to have these personal experiences that lead us to understand this. In fact, I'll borrow sort of a metaphor that uh, Lisa Adkins and I uh, have used in the Coaching Agile Teams conversations for, for the mini series of if you're not a mile deep in something, you're not sufficiently steeped in it to help others become just an inch or two deep in it. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't know if we're just approaching a tipping point around some portion of our population, really studying different disciplines around all of these kind of topics of, of trauma and grief or professional coaching or whatever it may be, just mm -hmm. to help the whole world become an inch or two deeper in our kind of systemic competency to deal with everything going on around us. Mm -hmm. That that gets deep, that goes a lot of places, but what comes up for you when I say that? Yeah, shaking my head quite a lot because I think that um, having come through the experience myself, and I mean, this now is, you know, years ago. <laughs> yeah, although when you said um, in 2014, I'm like, oh, that's just last year. No, that's been so many years ago now. <laughs> Yeah, but I also recognize in that that it was a process. So for me, that healing did not happen overnight. In fact, it took many years. And I would say only like the last couple of years have I really felt like all of those small incremental changes that I saw over time. I look back now and I'm like, wow, who was that person? That's like a different version. That's version 1.0. And now I'm in mm -hmm. 2.0. And to me, to relate it to Agile, it's, it, again, especially in Agile transformations, because you're really in it for the long haul. Um, and I, I am a very patient person. So I think I work well in those environments. Because, again, it is small incremental changes, meeting people where they're at. And then all of a sudden, a year goes by and you look back and you're like, wow. Yeah. Look what we've achieved. So I think it's the celebration of the small movements as opposed to those big banks. Hey, everyone. Natalie Warner here, the president and executive director of Women in Agile Org. 
I wanted to thank you for listening to this episode of the Women in Agile podcast series. We're thrilled to have this as a platform to showcase the wisdom of our community. We'd love to get your help to amplify the reach of the series by asking you to go over to iTunes in order to rate and review us. After you're done, take a screenshot of your rating and review. Then post a screenshot to Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn and tag hashtag Women in Agile. If you do this, we'll not only reshare your post, but also add you to a monthly drawing to receive a Women in Agile goodie bag filled with WIA stickers and other treats. Thanks for listening. Patience. I love that you brought up that word because Agile is not something you pick up and you just install and poof, we're different. This is often a multi-year endeavor to achieve all of the benefits that we know that uh, this has to offer and everything. And um, I just want to recognize that there's lots of organizational trauma and workplace trauma happening to people. And and I'm not seeking to compare Mm -hmm. it to personal trauma and other sorts of things people Mm -hmm. encounter, but there is similar patterns of psychological Mm -hmm. damage and other sorts of things that occur to people because of toxic work cultures that need to be healed and grieved and processed um, Mm -hmm. in order to be in just an environment to unlock agility. And actually, oftentimes, the act of introducing agile values, principles, and practices is a trigger Mm -hmm. that can activate some of this trauma because as things become more transparent, Mm -hmm. you're recognizing and seeing things that you wouldn't have otherwise been paying attention to. Yes, yes, definitely. And I I don't think there's a divide between home life and professional life. I mean, we might talk about it in these abstract Mm -hmm. terms, but ultimately, you're one person these things flow into each other. You bring personal into work, you bring work into personal. That's just the reality of it. But there are, uh, you know, there are psychotherapy techniques that you can bring into coaching that, you know, honestly, it's the same. It's really the same techniques. They're just labeled differently. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's use this as our landing port for the discussion. Like I, and I don't want to make it like a lightning round of conversation, (laughs) but let's bottom line them. So people really like get what those practical tips are. And right. We're not giving people a masterclass in what gestalt psychotherapy is, but it's like, I just want to point people to like places where they can get curious and things that they could start trying next week, even. Um, mm-hmm. kind of on an introductory level. So what are some of those tips yeah. and tricks? Yeah, absolutely. So again, just going back to remembering that Gestalt psychotherapy itself is rooted in mindfulness. I think coming from a place of mindfulness is an easy uh, landing spot. Mm-hmm. So um, an example is, you know, I was on a call not too long ago with an individual who was very upset. There's a lot going on, COVID, lockdowns. And it was really impacting this person. So again, rather than getting into that on a personal level, I just simply said, hey, why don't we just take a moment? Let's pause together and let's just let's just breathe together. Let's just have a couple deep breaths. Mm. And it was just having that moment together. And the person was receptive just because the emotions had overwhelmed. And, you know, sometimes when you get very upset and you're having a hard time getting oxygen into the body it was just a moment to pause 
And even for me, I think it just helped the situation and to diffuse it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I think just breathing. I know it's a very simple like technique that we tend to forget. Yeah, yeah. And I notice even just within me, um, and I'm saying this, I think I'm thinking <laughs> it and saying it for the first time ever. Um, because I'm really paying attention. I love the fact that we get to video chat and I wish listeners would have the benefit of just all the nonverbal signals and everything else going on in these conversations. But in the same way that yawning is contagious, mm-hmm. I believe that, that I'm taping a deep breath from a mindfulness perspective, not the kind of deep breath that's a sigh, but right. like that I'm going to pause here and just take a deep breath. Like watching you doing it and hearing it, I instinctively was doing it myself. <laughs> so even if you're not verbally inviting mm-hmm. others to do it, I kind of maybe like, let's try experiments when even on calls, if you happen to be in a situation ah. where you're able to be co-located with people, um, which mm-hmm. I think more and more of us are starting to get those, um, right. that I'm not going to invite you to take a deep breath, but I'm just going to kind of do it myself mm-hmm. and then notice mm-hmm. Do other people do it too? Because it might just be yeah. a signal that that pause is needed in the system. Yeah, yes. And I think it's a great way to even start a call. So I find too mm-hmm. often, <laughs> I'm I'm one of the sole people who turns my video on. I actually Ooh. brush my hair in the morning. I don't really care. I'll just show myself. I love the transparency. Um, and so we've got a lot of people who are, you know, on phone, but they can see mm-hmm. me. So I usually will start the call off and... The, the breath comes from that deep, deep stomach place. So, you know, it's a morning call, kind of. And the stretch that goes with it. Good morning, everybody. So there's an open, almost like a sun salutation. Good morning. Mm-hmm. Hello, everyone. How are you? And yeah. so, yes, there is the, that welcoming. And then sometimes when there's that place of conflict, if we're doing a stand-up or, you know, say, hmm. Let's just take a moment here. Let's just contemplate this just for a second before we move into a react. And I'll get into uh, my first and second wave theory in a moment. But um, just really taking, as you said, a pause before we jump. It's so important. So important. So one, breathing, taking that time to pause. What's the second tip Mm -hmm. or trick? Yeah. So I think for me, uh, I, I purposely... I put myself in places of vulnerability. Again, there's a boundary. I know how far to go. I'm pretty attuned to that. Um, but if I am having a bad day, and, and I've had, I've had a few bad days. It's just the reality. Uh, you know, maybe something traumatic happened with my dog or, you know, because uh, she's a bit feisty or um, who knows, you know, COVID's kind of got to me. So I'll, I will say, you know, on calls with people, hey, you know, if I seem a little down at the moment, I'm just I'm just having a bit of a challenge. So bear with me. I will come out of it, um, but I, I'm not afraid to express my emotions and show where I'm at. And I do that to a show that I am a human, I'm not a robot. I'm just like them. So I, I try to put myself at everyone else's level so there's equality. And then secondly, I do that to open up a window for others to do the same so that they know, hey, like this actually feels like a safe place. And I, I can tell you if I'm having a bad day and that's okay. 
and normalizing the fact that bad days happen. hundred percent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause I think there mm-hmm. is so much subconscious pressure to like be okay all of the time. And I'm absolutely, and that is not reality. Yeah, not. exactly. Yeah. And yeah. then, and then if I, Oh, I was going to say, I'm, I'm, I'm finding this bubbling curiosity because you said something like first wave, second wave theory. And I'm like, that yeah. sounds interesting. So what's that? But I also don't want to get you there before you're ready to get there. <laughs> yeah, no, I just wanted to, to follow up because you just said the word curiosity. And I think that was my next tip and trick. And, and again, oh, I know this is very common in both coaching, but in psychotherapy, curiosity is a foundational component to uh, gestalt. Mm -hmm. So again, a lot of parallels. And um, one thing that I, I have done in the past, which is a bit of a faux pas, because I am just I love that curious for pa, myths and things that like <laughs> let's clear those up. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so one one thing I learned, you know, maybe a couple of years ago was I was asking a lot of why questions. You know, of course, we all know powerful questions. I think some are a little bit more powerful than others. So you know, if someone were to ask you, Leslie, you know, if they were to to say maybe three or four why questions in a row. Like, how would that make you feel? Do you think you'd feel a little interrogated? Yes. As I was going to say, it's like, are, what, you're, am I a suspect in something? Like, what are you trying <laughs> to get at here? <laughs> exactly. So I noticed this this trait or this tendency, like, why, why, why? And then I realized, my God, I sound like a five-year-old, which is fine for a five-year-old. Maybe not so great for a 45-year-old in a coaching um, so I really learned to diversify and switch up my powerful questions and curiosity. And uh, first of all, I'm more into hows these days. Hows and what's yeah, <laughs> that I am so what, much the wise. What are a couple examples of your favorite powerful questions right now? Oh, it's so funny because my head immediately went to, how does that make you feel? But I would also say that's probably a faux pas as well. (laughs) You can ask that once, but you can't ask that several times. And then you sound like you are a therapist and that will annoy people. (laughs) What is emerging for you right now in this conversation? Yeah. What word stands out the most for you that you would like to explore more? Yeah. What's (laughs) present for you right now? is one that I use. Yeah. Oh, I love that. What are you noticing? Yes. Yes. Much better. Yeah. I feel like it's, it's really hard to resist the urge not to just do a giant, (laughs) you know, five minutes of just asking powerful questions (laughs) into the ether. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What else on curiosity? Um, let's see. So I think that looking for keywords, and again, I know this is a again, a, a, once again, a parallel between psychotherapy and coaching. That's that's really uh, very present. Um, so, for example, let's see here. So when you're you know developing your practice of really listening to the system, especially on conference calls. And as I said, maybe you can't always see people. Not everyone is uh, comfortable to go on video. Um, Again, I listen for that tone of voice. And then I listen to keywords. And I'll actually write them down just on a little piece of paper. So, for example, you know, Susan, who's I'm just making this name up. Susan might say, you know, 
I should talk to the client earlier in the process, but I feel like he's too busy. Well, to me, there's two key words there, should and feel. And so I might ask, well, how do you think we can turn that should into I will? Or I might say something like, you know, I, I notice you mentioned you, you feel he might be too busy. So, you know, what is giving you a sense of this busyness? And for me, it's starting to try and unearth, hmm, like I'm already sensing that Susan might be a bit fearful. I don't yeah. want to say that, but I want to start asking questions to kind of see if my intuition is in fact correct. Yeah. And, the, and then I make up, right? She She's telling herself stories about things that may not be true. So mm-hmm. it's just simply a way getting curious in the exact line of kind of questioning mm-hmm. that you're talking about can help us yeah. uncover where we're making assumptions that are holding us back. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a thing we all do all the time. Mm-hmm. And if you don't slow down, yes, the stories we tell ourselves, which that's another question that I often ask people. It's like, so what, what are you making up about what's going on here right now? And you have <laughs> to get people comfortable with that phrase of like making up stories because that in in fact in and of itself can sort of be like, huh, what do you mean? So there's got to be a little education before you can ask that question. But that's another that's one right. that I've used within a team where I've normalized that idea. And it's like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm totally making up something that could not be real right now. Let me just go get curious with them and ask myself. Yeah, I, I tend to think that we get in our own way. And it's finding yes. where those barriers are and exploring yes. those boundaries. Yep. Yep. All right. Other tips and tricks? Um, let's see. I mean, I think those are right now some of the okay. three main ones. Okay. Um, I'm just sort of going back to the why, why, why. I think yeah. for me, it's, I don't ever want to come across that I'm being like micromanaging or, mm-hmm. or as you said. Um, so just very cognizant of that to let people fail. Yes. I think that's something that I have actually personally struggled with because I myself don't like failure, so I need to be very cautious uh, and have my own self-awareness. What are my triggers? And one of my triggers is failure. So Mm. knowing that about myself, that is one of those things where I now need to be cautious of within my boundaries and actually, even though it's so uncomfortable, let people fail. So Mm -hmm. that way we can actually have some some real substantial learning. Yes, I love that. I love that. Well, then Lisa, let's, if you're, if you're feeling good about tips and tricks, let's, should we wrap up with this idea of first wave, second wave? Yes. Okay. Cause <laughs> I, you mentioned this in our pre-call. I know mm-hmm. we um, wrote it down in notes, but you ha- I, and I resisted the urge to Google it myself because <laughs> I wanted to learn along with everyone else. So what is yes. this? Yeah, it's funny. There's actually not a whole lot on the internet about it. Um, And if there is, I think it's more scholarly articles, which I'm more than happy to send you. Um, (laughs) But but one of the practical elements of Gestalt psychotherapy, and and it is, it's called the two-wave theory. Uh, I did not personally make this up. This is from Gestalt. Um, So it talks about our reactive state to situations, um, which again, very applicable to coaching. Mm -hmm. So Let's say there's, um, you know, a conflict situation that's happening at work. Could be anything. 
Um, the idea is that there are two waves. So the first wave is very much a reactive wave. It's, you know, uh, it's an immediate, it's not even conscious. You're just jumping in. Um, it's, it's resistance, it's rigid, there's high walls. Um, you know, it's very much head focused. Uh, it's a bit ego based. Um, and it really possesses a lot of self interest. Not the prettiest situation, but there we go. It's a bit messy. Blah. Yeah. First wave. So the idea here is, okay, again, be very present, understand. You can usually feel it in your body when there's a conflict. I don't know about you, but I feel it in my heart, especially. And it hits you. It's like that uh, that wave on the beach. The first one, it crashes in and, oh, it's messy. It's yucky. It's hurting the heart. So I acknowledge, ooh, that's a first wave. I even call it out now. I'm like, uh, I know what that is. I see you, first wave. So the idea is to wait, let that pass. And you know what? It could take several dates, but wait for that, for that feeling to pass and wait for that second wave, which is more gentle. And it's based on connection, compassion, you know, holding the, the container and the space for others. It's asking you to slow down. Um, and it's really asking that powerful question, you know, how can I support you? Uh, two, wave two is very much heart focused, which is funny because I said that it does hit me in the heart. Um, and it believes it's in like heart, truth. Yeah, heart jarring yeah. versus heart yes. healing is sort of yes. a, the, the span that I'm yes. thinking of. Yeah. Oh, that's a great analogy. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really based, wave two is based in uh, truth, ownership and engagement. So, um, you know, I use this in my personal life. I use this now in my professional life. You know, if there's something happening even in the family, let's say I have an argument with my mom, I again, go back to, Ooh, that's, wave one and it could take yeah. a couple days let wave two settle in and at that point i engage and it's a much deeper richer experience yeah there's something really great about just educating a teams you're working with on this concept because i think about that classic mm -hmm. scenario like we're, team we're in a groove we're delivering value and then for whatever reason mm -hmm. we learn something about market conditions or stakeholders come to us and we've got to abandon a ton of yeah. stuff in our backlog and change it all up the mm -hmm. first wave of that can just be so irritating and so frustrating in the sense of yes. loss around things that you were really jazzed about working on. And then it's like, once you've processed through that and mm -hmm. kind of honored, oh, yep, change is happening. Then you've got that space to be like, okay, now let's rally around this. But being able right. to use that language of, wow, all right, let's let mm -hmm. this first wave come. What do we need from each other while we're here? Because we're all mm -hmm. experiencing it potentially in different ways, but just naming it again yeah, um, so that it can pass and then, right, allow that second wave to come in. Yeah, and I actually even uh, picture it, I visualize it as waves on a beach. So when it's actually happening in that moment in time, I visualize the beach, which is a very calming experience too. Oh, yeah. So it all, yeah. all goes hand in hand. I love that. I love that. What else on Gestalt therapy before we close our conversation for today? Yeah, I'm going to go back Gestalt to psychotherapy. I realized I left out a word there. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, I think for me, 
what I love about it is is just going back to personal responsibility. And I think about um, people over processes. And I just think that there's so much wrapped into the two together. I think just taking care, knowing, knowing what's in control, what's in our realm, owning it, taking responsibility for it, but then knowing that, you know, people matter, that process, that matters more so than um, creating structures. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Lisa, thank you for sharing all of this with us today. Um, I want to ask you our two kind of standard wrap-up questions uh, because uh, I think they're (laughs) important and I like patterns. (laughs) So um, we've given people a lot of stuff to think about introducing um, Gestalt and everything that you've given us today. Um, Mm -hmm. But I mentioned you're also looking at Enneagram and co-active coaching. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other things that you're geeking out on that listeners Mm -hmm. might find inspiring that they might want to go look up and check out as well. Yeah, no, I'm glad that you mentioned the Enneagram. Definitely going to um, take that course this year. I actually feel that it will be a foundational piece in in psychotherapy. I think that's what I'll leave with because it just really, it's, a, it's such a powerful tool. Uh, it's an ancient tool, has a lot of wisdom. Um, it has some spiritual components to it, but it really reveals um, motivational behaviors and factors and underlying reasons of why we do the things that we do, that fascinates me. Um, And I think that it can also, provided there's a psychologically safe space, I I would love to see it becoming more integrated into our professional career. I don't know if that's necessarily the role of an agile coach. I'm going to say probably not, Um, but perhaps more along the lines of like people and culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really hoping there's more of a shift in that direction. So for folks who are not familiar with the Enneagram, uh, there's the Enneagram Institute. That uh, is probably my favorite resource to go to. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to think. I mean, I'm, I am so wrapped up with Gestalt psychotherapy. It is kind of an all-encompassing place in my life mm-hmm. right now. I don't always have time for other research. Um, but I think, I think even taking a look as Gestalt is global. It did come from uh, Europe originally in the uh, the early part of the 20th century. Um, so I think just doing a bit more of a deeper dive on it, looking at the origin story, Fritz Pearls, Fritz and Laura Pearls were the originators. It has definitely, uh, you know, come to America more in the 50s with the whole humanistic movement. Um, so yeah, people want to explore a little bit more around where Gestalt is today and even the evolution. Um, I think that's a great place to start. Very cool. Very cool. Thank you, Lisa. Final thoughts and wisdom you want to share with folks? Oh, I'm just taking a deep breath from the gut, expanding the chest and smiling. This is a wonderful experience. And thank you so much, Leslie. Yeah. Thank you, Lisa, for being here. I really enjoyed it. And I hope listeners did too. Yeah. So thank you for tuning into this episode of the Women in Agile podcast series. It's brought you brought to you in partnership from the Women in Agile nonprofit organization and scrum.org. We hope you've learned something new and invite you to tell a friend or a coworker about the podcast. You can always go online to womeninagile.org to learn more about our initiatives and find additional inspiring podcast conversations.
Thanks for listening to this Women in Agile podcast episode. Find more inspiring conversations by visiting womeninagile.org slash podcast, checking out the podcast series on iTunes, or visiting your podcast application of choice. If you have an idea for a topic, speaker, or feedback on an episode, please reach out to us via email through podcast at womeninagile.org.